Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula, and Figile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Congolese militia leader set to appear at the ICC today and UN envoy says the Great Lakes region needs peace for development. In economics, Ivory Coast re-emerges as West Africa's investment hotspot and in sports news, South African runner breaks the indoor 3,000 meter record. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Peace talks between the government and opposition forces in Syria are due to resume in Geneva today as the warring parties attempt to find a way to end three years of conflict in the country. Millions of people have fled the fighting in Syria and over 100,000 have been killed. The government and opposition met in face-to-face talks for the first time in Geneva last month but failed to strike a peace deal. The joint UN Arab League envoy Lakhdar Rahimi will once again be mediating. Director of Information at the United Nations in Geneva, Corinne Momal, says Brahimi had always stated that a political agreement was the only way forward for Syria. He said several times, and the Secretary General has said it as well, they have gone into this process with their eyes wide open, with no illusion that it would be easy, and fully cognizant that the parties are wide apart. However... There's no other solution than political dialogue. Mali's Interior Security Minister General Sada Samaka has blamed the movement for unity and jihad in West Africa, Mudra, for killing 31 Turegs in an attack on Friday near the town of Tamkotat in northern Mali. Initial reports had attributed the killings to the settling of scores between Pol and Tureg ethnic groups. The Mudra has not claimed the attack. Twin explosions have rocked the eastern city of Benghazi, leaving no casualties. The first explosion damaged an MTC front restaurant yesterday. The second blast came five minutes later in a central road. Six cars were charred as a result of the explosion, and the glass of nearby buildings were shattered. The twin blast took place hours after former Prosecutor General Abdelaziz al-Hassadi was assassinated in the eastern city of Derna. Hassadi was the first Prosecutor General, appointed after the 2011 revolution. He resigned from the post in March 2013. 
Basic relief supplies are reaching an estimated 10,000 displaced people outside of the UN base in the town of Malakal in South Sudan. That's according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Malakal has been the scene of some of the fiercest fighting last month. UNHCR's Fotomata Lejean Kaba says insecurity and widespread looting are hampering the delivery of aid. According to UN estimates, there are 38,000 displaced people inside Malakal, including 28,000 sheltered at the UN base. The displaced fled from within the county of Malakal. It's a bit confusing because Malakal is a county and it's also the name of the main city of Upper Nile. So they're displaced from within the county, which has rivers and from Jungle. There are mainly women children, and there are many elderly people among the displaced as well. To reach the city of Malakal, some said they had to use boats to cross a river, while others had to swim. Some women also said that they walked for hours with their children before they could cross. Today marks the 24th anniversary of the day that former South African President F.W. de Klerk announced that he was going to release Nelson Mandela. De Klerk made the announcement on the 10th of February 1990. The decision to unconditionally release Madiba and later other political activists took many by surprise. It paved the way for the birth of a democratic South Africa in which the late Mandela was the first president. 100 South African students from Limpopo province are leaving for Cuba today to study medicine. Limpopo province Premier Stan Matabata, who has already bade them farewell, said the provincial government has approved more than $1 million for the students. Matabata says he hopes their training will reduce the province's backlog of 5,400 doctors. Health care is a priority in this province. We are a province which is predominantly rural, a province which has been hard hit by the apartheid system in the past, in the sense that uh, there is little development that took place in that field in this province. As a result, even those doctors who are children of this province, who grew up in this province, are actually working in uh, urban areas. We are fighting, trailing, trying to fight this backlog. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time and you're, coming, you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Judges of the International Criminal Court will today hear evidence against Bosco Ntaganda, a rebel leader from the Democratic Republic of Congo, in a short hearing to determine whether the case against him should proceed to trial. Ntaganda has been implicated in grave crimes in eastern Congo over the past decade. For more on this, Jose Rodinga spoke to Geraldine Mortioli-Zeltner, International Justice Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch. Bosco Ntaganda has been charged by the International Criminal Court with war crimes and crimes against humanity, including murder, persecution, rape, sexual slavery, peaging, and the recruitment and use of child soldiers. All of them alleged to have happened in the district of Ituri, which is a province in the northeast of Congo during the war that took place there in 2002-2003. That is the scope of the current case at the ICC. 
Apparently, Bosco Ntaganda did manage to evade arrest for almost seven years. Could you explain how that happened? Yes. So the first ICC arrest warrant was indeed issued in August 2006, and he only basically arrived at the ICC in March last year. So that's almost seven years on the run in Congo. And it's important, I think, for the listeners to understand that the International Criminal Court does not have its own police. So when it issues an arrest warrant, it can't send its own police to arrest the people. It really counts on the countries where those suspects are to conduct the arrest themselves. And in 2006, Bosco and Taganda belonged to a rebel group in Congo that was very powerful, that controlled big areas of the Kivus, another province in Congo, and that defeated the Congolese army many, many times. So I think practically speaking, at that time, it was actually not possible for the Congolese army or the Congolese government to organize an arrest against Bosco and Taganda. He was way too powerful. And that lasted until 2009, when his armed group was integrated into the Congolese army, and he was made a general in the army. And that's where we go into a different phase, a phase where the Congolese government simply said, we don't believe this is the right time to arrest this person, and we will not implement our obligations under the International Criminal Court. We'll just ignore this arrest warrant. And that is obviously very unfortunate and contrary to the obligations of Congo. But that's what we saw between 2009 and 2012. And Taganda was just a general in the army. He was able to enjoy complete impunity for the crimes he's accused of. You say that he then arrived at the ICC in March of last year. How did the International Criminal Court then gain custody of Ndanganda? Yes, that was a very unexpected twist of event, I have to tell you. Human Rights Watch has worked for years to secure the arrest of Bosco and Taganda. We did a lot of advocacy with the Congolese government. We pushed other governments to put pressure on the Congolese government to arrest him. But what happened in March 2013, we had not expected at all. And basically what happened is that Bosco and Taganda had been involved in a new rebel group. He had mutinied from the Congolese army and created a new group, which is called the M23, for March and the date of an agreement, a previous agreement between a rebel group and, and the Congolese government. So he was involved in that group. And suddenly, on March 18th, we heard he had surrendered himself to the American embassy in Kigali, Rwanda. So he voluntarily went to the Americans and said, I want to be transferred to the International Criminal Court. And this is the first time that it ever happens, that one suspect of the ICC voluntarily surrenders himself and says, I want to be transferred to the court. Why did that? I think nobody really knows. There were some clashes in his group, and his side lost against the other faction. It's quite possible that he lost his support and that he feared for for his life. He feared that he was going to be killed, and that's what prompted him to surrender himself. Now then, going back to this short hearing that will be taking place, will the victims of the crimes that Ndanganda committed in Eastern DR Congo be able to participate in this hearing? Yes, it's a very important novelty at the International Criminal Court, which did not exist at other tribunals. The victims are indeed entitled to participation in the hearings, not as witnesses for the prosecution, but really in their own right, where they are allowed to make their views and their concerns known in the hearing.
Now, at this point in time, the International Criminal Court has authorized 922 victims of the alleged crimes against Bosco to participate. That doesn't mean there will be 922 people in The Hague. They will be represented by a lawyer. So the ICC has appointed a lawyer, and the ICC is paying for these lawyers, and the lawyers basically have as a mandate to be in touch with the victims in Etorim and make sure that the views and concerns of these victims can be accurately represented. What we expect is that the lawyers will make an opening statement where they will explain why the hearing is important for their clients. And then across the week, they'll be able to ask permission from the judges to make statements on behalf of the victims. Okay, so you're saying that those people in DR Congo, those especially affected by Bosco Ntanganda's abuses, will be able to follow the proceedings in The Hague through the lawyers? Through the lawyers, exactly. So they have a lawyer in The Hague, and there's also an assistant lawyer in Congo who's ensuring that the contact can go between the victims and the lawyer. That was Geraldine Mattioli Zaltner, International Justice Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch, on the line from The Hague, speaking to Jose Khodinake. It will be the end of the justice process for the Kenyan victims of the post-2007-2008 election violence in that country if the International Criminal Court judges decide to terminate the case against Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta on charges of crimes against humanity. So says the legal representative for the victims in the ICC case, Fegal Gaino. He spoke to our correspondent in The Hague, Lilian Strobach. Well, first of all, we've, we have to keep in mind that the judges are, are still seized of this issue. They haven't decided what to do with it. If, in fact, uh, having considered all the filings, they do decide to terminate the proceedings. The first thing to, uh, to understand is that it's the end of the justice process as far as the Kenyan victims are concerned. Just yesterday, the director of public prosecutions confirmed that of the 4,000 post-election violence cases uh, that he is aware of, not one of them is prosecutable. That's his position which he gave yesterday. Now, as I argued yesterday in court, this seems to be part of a general state strategy of depriving the victims of the post-election violence crimes on both sides of the conflict from a genuine justice process in Kenya. So the end of this case, if that is what is ordered in the Kenyatta case, will mean the end of the justice process full stop. And that has a number of other impacts. Um, it will mean, for example, that the truth about what happened in Naibasha and Nakuru uh, in January 2008 won't come out properly, uh, because this trial was promised to be a truth-telling uh, experience, I think, for, from the victim's perspective. Another aspect is that they will not receive reparations. Reparations cannot be ordered by the ICC in the absence of a conviction. They only come if a conviction is ordered. You mentioned a number of 20,000 victims, of which you had hands-on experience with six, 700. What were some of the stories that emerged? One woman, for example, um, was herself raped, and after they had finished with her, they raped her 12-year-old daughter. Now, that alone, obviously, is enormously uh, traumatic in so many different ways to have to be raped yourself and for your own child to be raped. To make matters worse, because of what she sees as the trauma experienced by her daughter, her daughter disappeared one day from her house and she has never actually seen her. 
What justice can they expect from the domestic judicial system after this court case? What we've, from what we've seen so far, absolutely nothing. I'd like to focus on two things. First of all, the Director of Public Prosecutions has set up what he described as a multi-agency task force. Yesterday, as I said, he confirmed that of the 4,000 post-election violence cases that the task force has, not one will go to prosecution. So we're going to see no accountability for any level at the high level or the mid-level uh, of responsibility on either side of the conflict in Kenya. So we're, we're looking at a total justice vacuum. Should the case against Nuhur Kenyatta be terminated, what hope is there for any reconciliation between the tribes involved? The potential for reconciliation in Kenya is huge on an individual level. There is enormous faith and hope in the future in Kenya. Individual Kenyans, each and every one of them, I think, with very few exceptions, are completely capable of reconciliation. But the political environment does have to be hospitable to that kind of reconciliation. Now, in my view, a good trial, a proper, faithful, open and honest trial in case one and the same in case two would have assisted that reconciliation process. We've seen trials take place concerning the atrocities in Bosnia, concerning the atrocities in other areas, Rwanda is a little more complex, but certainly in Bosnia, I believe that the truth-telling function of the tribunal has helped reconciliation. There are some outcomes in this case which could potentially adversely affect reconciliation if, for example, uh, there were to be a conviction against uh, either of the accused in case one, accompanied by uh, dropping off the charges in case two, that, on any common sense view, is un unlikely to enhance reconciliation. Of course, we fervently hope, everyone fervently hopes that it won't lead to any kind of violence, but it certainly uh, won't enhance the reconciliation process. Where does this all leave the ICC? I, I did make some arguments in court, and I certainly don't want to relitigate the, the issue, but I believe that if charges are dropped against uh, the president of Kenya, in an environment in which there has been a great deal of reported witness intimidation, bribery of witness, witnesses, and state obstruction of access to evidence, that this will have a negative effect on the court's credibility. I also think that it will have a very uh, negative effect on the court's deterrent effect. Uh, we, we, will, we all know that terrible atrocities have already taken place this year in, in the Central African Republic, and in South Sudan, uh, th these demand uh, a strong deterrent effect from the court. But if there is now going to be uh, a feeling that if you're powerful enough, if you are the president of a country, and if you obstruct access to evidence, uh, that you can get off the hook, that, that there's a real danger that that message is going to go out in a negative way. Fergal Gaynor, legal representative for victims in the ICC case against Uhuru Kenyatta. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. If you have any questions or comments about our show, you're welcome to send us an email to info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. You can also get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa One. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorza. Africa, amuka na unai.
Countries in the Great Lakes region of Africa need peace in order to be able to take advantage of their enormous natural resources to promote development. That view has been expressed by Mary Robinson, the UN Special Envoy for the region. Robinson believes that an agreement reached by 11 African countries in February last year brings hope for peace in the Great Lakes region. The UN Envoy is supporting the implementation of the peace, security and cooperation framework for the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Great Lakes region of Africa. UN Radio's Christina Silviero caught up with Mary Robinson at UN headquarters and asked what message she was bringing to a meeting discussing peace and sustainable development. My message is that peace is essential for development. Indeed, there's a continuum. You can't have peace without development. You can't really have development without peace, and you could have neither without human rights and rule of law. If you look at the statistics of countries in conflict, they don't achieve the Millennium Development Goals. They're way below other poor countries, if I could put it that way. If you look at the Central African region, the Great Lakes region, the DRC itself, it's actually a very rich country. It's very rich in minerals, in natural resources, in hydro and energy resources, but it's very poor because of the conflict. And I think we now have to move on from the Millennium Development Goal approach, which didn't factor in enough issues of violence, issues of conflict. And the Sustainable Development Goals have to put peace and security and rule of law and good governance into the heart of the Sustainable Development Goals. This also requires natural resource management. Absolutely, natural resource management and indeed good cooperation between countries of the region in order to develop the full potential. I'm very conscious that the peace, security and cooperation framework is a framework of hope. And with the joint visit last May of the Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon and the President of the World Bank, Jim Kim, it was clear that the World Bank was prepared to put up to a billion dollars into projects in the region that would help the peace, security and cooperation. We're building on that now. We've had the recent meeting of the Regional Oversight Mechanism at the African Union Summit in Addis a week ago, and the heads of state adopted a plan of action which includes preparing for a private sector investment conference. And I want to get this idea that development is also very related to securing a durable peace. You speak of this framework of hope. Can you briefly tell us the priorities in implementing this framework at this point? The priorities are to continue to work with the heads of state of the region at a political level on what they have committed to in the plan of action and they are willing to be measured on that performance before their next meeting which will be during the General Assembly in September. This includes a whole range of commitments, the commitments not to support armed groups. It also includes work on the women's platform for the Great Lakes region which was launched in Addis and this is a new initiative. I'm the first woman to be a special envoy in a conflict situation and I wanted to honour the Security Council Resolution 1325 and make sure that women were visible at the table and resourced for what they were doing and that's what the platform will do. So at all levels, bottom up and top down, we want this framework to put in place the structures for a sustainable peace and good development of the region. Next week there's going to be a major debate on civilians and armed conflict in the Security Council. And from your work in the Great Lakes, what do you think are the most important considerations in the protection of civilians in conflict areas? First of all, we have to put in place what we talk about, zero tolerance 
of sexual and gender-based violence. And I think that that's just so incredibly important. And it has to be a commitment at all levels, and it has to be implemented. And secondly, we have to realize that it is civilians who are in the front line in situations of conflict. I watch those images at the moment of what's happening in the Central African Republic, which is part of the Great Lakes framework. I look at South Sudan and see a situation. I was in Juba. I really believe that there is a failure of leadership when a falling out can result in such terrible humanitarian chaos and violence and disruption for people. So we need to make sure that the protection of civilians is central, that there is a sense that leaders serve their people. They are not there to either develop their own ambitions. They really have to be held to account. And I believe that media and civil society need to hold governments to account for their commitments. When it comes to the peace, security and cooperation framework, we've worked hard at regional level, first of all with benchmarks which were approved by the heads of state, and now with a plan of action. That makes visible what they've committed to. And I want civil society, religious, faith-based groups, women's groups, young people in the region to hold their governments to account. The UN can't do it all. A special envoy, you know, you can bring them to the table and they will commit, but to hold them to account is a matter of civilian and media and other forces and private sector because it's their country. And I think that's part of the protection of civilians, mm. that it's... Uh, reinforcing their voices reinforcing on the Reinforcing their voices, yeah. That was Mary Robinson, the UN Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region of Africa, talking to UN Radio's Christina Silviero. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.25 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The delivery of humanitarian aid and the evacuation of besieged people from the Syrian city of Homs has been described as a small breakthrough by the UN's humanitarian office, OCHA. 83 people were evacuated from homes on Friday during a three-day pause in hostilities agreed by the warring parties. The conflict in Syria has been going on for three years during which over 100,000 people have been killed. Daniel Dickinson asked Amanda Pete, the spokesperson for OCHA, for more information about the operation. What we've seen today uh, is uh, a number of people have been evacuated from the old city of Homs, I think 83 people in total, because uh, a three-day humanitarian pause was agreed between the parties to the conflict. Uh, now, the old city of Homs is one of the many areas across Syria which has not people have not been able to receive aid for months, sometimes more, uh, in the last year. Is the objective for the next three days to bring out as many people as possible? I think that the parties to the conflict discussed this about a week ago during the Geneva talks uh, with, with uh, Mr. Brahimi and said that they wanted to allow civilians out and aid in uh, to this particular um, place. So we've seen, I think, 83 come out today. I think the hope is that more will be able to come out in the next couple of days and as importantly for us to be able to get food and medical supplies in. How significant is this? I think it's very important. We've been waiting for this for a long time. It's a small but modest step. You know, we welcome it, of course, but uh, and it is a breakthrough, but it's a small breakthrough. What we need to see is full and unfettered access for the United Nations and its humanitarian partners across Syria for the millions of people who need immediate help. 
And what role did the UN actually play in the evacuation today? My understanding is that the, the parties to the conflict, uh, the government and the opposition, that they agreed amongst themselves a ceasefire, a humanitarian pause, as we like to call it, for, I think, three days. I think the United Nations was involved in then helping to agree some of the arrangements on the ground to then implement that uh, so that we could get people out and food and supplies in. What happens after this three-day pause? Is it business as usual? We need to see uh, the humanitarian operations scaled up as much as we can. We've, we've wanted to see uh, aid going into these types of places for a long time. There are three million people stuck or trapped, I should say, in hard-to-reach areas or besieged areas, depending that they're often besieged by, by de various parties to this conflict. Uh, and we need to see full access everywhere. There are a lot of people who need uh, urgent aid. They don't have enough food. Uh, they don't have medical care. They've been wounded. They haven't got jobs. The list is endless, uh, and we're seeing this across the country in a lot of areas. That was Amanda Peets, the spokesperson for the UN's Humanitarian Office, OCHA, talking to Daniel Dickinson. Deputy President of South Africa's ruling ANC, Cyril Ramaphosa, says his party is confident that it will increase its vote in the May the 7th national elections. He has been conducting a voters' registration campaign in the Mirafong region west of Johannesburg. The stakes are high for the 2014 elections as party leaders travelled across the country over the weekend to encourage people to register for the upcoming elections. Tsepo Ikaneng has more. Election posters predict that the ruling party will lose significant voter support due to challenges such as high unemployment and poverty, as well as a shrinking economy. However, some political observers argue that the failed marriage between the opposition DA and Ahang South Africa could get the ANC support from the black middle class and undecided voters. As a South African citizen, Umsebenz Wako is to go and vote. ANC's Deputy President Sir Ramaphosa spent the weekend at the West Rand encouraging prospective voters to register for the forthcoming polls. He visited a squatter camp in Tudor Shaft where the community is faced with a number of service delivery challenges like lack of housing and sanitation. Addressing the media, Ramaphosa said the protests that had engulfed the country were not an indication of dissatisfaction with the ruling party but a plea to fast-track service delivery. The service delivery protests that, that are happening are actually a plea on the part of our people to say we would like the ruling party to respond to the needs that we have. And there are urgent needs. Service delivery has slowed down and in some cases has not happened. They have not abandoned the African National Congress. And they keep saying we are urging you to act with speed. Now, this is a clear message from, us, uh, from our people to us, that our people want us to act with speed, and they're putting us on our toes, and we are going to respond with the greatest urgency. According to the Independent Electoral Commission, more than 2 million people in Gauteng, mostly young persons, are up for grabs in the May 7th national and provincial elections. It's for this reason that both the ANC and the DA have intensified lobbying for votes for control of the country's economic hub. Ramaphosa says the ruling party is doing its best to address the plight of the young people. 
We have found that even with young people, once you interact with them, once you engage with them, and once you deal with the real issues that affect them, things like skills, education, bursaries at uh, FET colleges and uh, universities, and also you explain the plans that we have for jobs, they, they then begin to wake up and they react with enthusiasm and they say, we are going to register. And we're urging them to go and register. And they will choose which party they vote for. Wrapping up his weekend voter registration door-to-door campaign in Mirafong region, west of Johannesburg, ANC's deputy president expressed optimism that the ANC will perform well in the much-anticipated polls. We are on a roll as the African National Congress. We are gaining ground wherever we are campaigning. We are winning by-elections. When doomsayers have been saying that the ANC is almost on its knees, is going to lose, they are in for a big shock and a surprise. We are going to win. And on an overall basis, the ANC does not campaign to lose. The ANC campaigns to win. And that's precisely what we are going to be doing. Meanwhile, the escalation of violent protests in Gauteng has forced the provincial government to establish a high-level task team to address service delivery grievances. Tseboikaneng in Johannesburg. And Musa is up next with the headlines. Good morning. Peace talks between the government and opposition forces in Syria resume in Geneva today. A weekend of violence and looting in the Central African Republic's capital, Bangui, leaves at least 11 people dead. And former Congolese rebel leader Bosco Ndaganda to appear at the International Criminal Court at The Hague in the Netherlands today. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. The last day of voter registration in the United States was tepid at best, with all four missions in the country registering no more than 400 new voters in total for the May election. Government officials were reluctant to share final figures with the media due to IEC protocols, but sources have revealed a lackluster response from eligible new voters in the country. Sean Bryce Pease reports from New York. This is the correct information. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. Okay. For Shlezipi Kunene, this will be the first time she'll vote in a South African election since leaving the country more than two decades ago. I felt that, you know, it was very important for me to come this time. Given the chance that, uh, you know, I've been in this country for over 20 years and... Uh, you know, and I wasn't sure about the first election going back to South Africa because I was working, I was in the middle of and in school. So I was thrilled that finally my government has given us a chance as experts to be able to vote. Experts are able to register and later vote at one of the four South African missions in Washington, New York, Los Angeles and Chicago. While official figures will only be released to the IEC, Sources reveal that Los Angeles has registered the fewest number of voters, a number below 50, with New York 
having registered more than 100. Nkabeko Peter Nkanywa is a music student in New Jersey who registered at the consulate in New York. It's my first time registering to vote. I've never voted in South Africa. And keeping up with what's been happening in South Africa, I felt a strong sense of obligation to come here and register. And it's the deadline today, so I had to come here today. He believes this will be an important election. Currently, I feel there's a lot of political tension and things need to get fixed. And I feel that my participation in voting is rather pivotal because if students and young kids don't register to vote, we can't make a difference. Francois Spies moved to New York four months ago to pursue a career in sound engineering. I think it's very important to vote because a lot of people in South Africa choose not to. Um, I did vote in the municipal elections recently and you know everybody's vote does make a difference. Um, this, as they say, is a tipping point election and I think it's time for a good change in South Africa. While Pumi Kunene is a fashion designer who has lived in Brooklyn, New York for the last five years. I wanted to make a difference. Um, for whatever that's going on back in South Africa, I think everybody has... Um, you know, a say in who they want to have in the office. And being that this is the first time uh, people abroad can actually vote, I thought I should actually vote as well. Officials have indicated more people are likely to turn up on election day if they've registered and voted before. According to the latest U.S. Census, around 83,000 people self-identify as South Africans living in the United States. Sherman Bryceby's News, New York. The price of cereals, sugars, oils and meat around the world fell in January for the first time in three months. The food price index published by the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization tracks the prices of internationally traded food commodities. While the overall trend was down, the price of dairy products increased. The index averaged to 103.4 points in January 2014, down 1.3% from December. Sandra Ferrari asked the FAO's dairy and livestock market expert, Michael Griffin, to explain in more detail. What we've seen is that since the end of 2011, the index has been fairly stable. It's oscillated around the figure of 210. Within the index, some products have gone down substantially, for example, in the case of cereals, where the prices of others have been quite sustained, for example, livestock products and sugar. Now what we're seeing, though, is that more commodities are joining the downward trend, and this is a result of favourable production for most crops during 2013. But dairy prices have not fallen. Why is that? Dairy prices haven't fallen because the world trade in dairy products is very limited in terms of the countries supplying it. What this means is that there's very wide demand but very limited supply and there's very little scope for increasing output. Largely, four or five countries supply most of the world market. These are principally the European Union, New Zealand and Australia, the United States and a group of countries in South America. So what does this tell us about the status of dairy commodities? Dairy has moved, you could say, in the opposite direction from other products. But then we have to consider that when we speak of dairy products, they're in fact different from most of the other products in the index, in that the other products are raw materials, whether they be grains, coarse cereals, sugar, oil seeds, whereas the dairy products are traded as processed products. So it implies a high level of technology and development of an industry, and it's very difficult to begin new production. It's a very slow process.
The fact that dairy prices are going up, does that affect the overall price index? Yes, because the trade in the index is weighted according to trade and the value of trade, dairy products have a high weighting within the index because, as I mentioned earlier, they're traded as processed products. Therefore, they have a higher value per tonne than most of the other products in the index. At the same time, while I don't see dairy products coming down in price, and it seems probable that meat prices will remain stable, the data provided by other colleagues in FAO indicate that the crop-based products are coming down, and within the whole index this may mean a gradual decline over the coming months. The outlook for world supplies is generally positive, and the fact that stocks have built up in many commodities is reflected by a decrease in prices. That was UN Food and Agricultural Organization's dairy and livestock market expert Michael Griffin talking to Sandra Ferrari. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.40 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done to promote equality between men and women involved in the radio broadcasting industry. That's according to Mirta Lorenko, Chief of Media Development and Society at the UN scientific and cultural organization UNESCO. UNESCO observes 13th February as World Radio Day each year to highlight the role of this medium. On the eve of the day, Lorenko spoke to UN Radio's Derek Mbata about some of the gender disparities in the radio medium. Only 37% of the radio stories are reported by women. The highest rates are in Africa and Latin America with 38%. Don't think it's better in Europe because in Europe only 40% of radio stories are reported by women. And in North America, 29%, which together with the Caribbean and the Middle East, they are the lowest regions. Also, we have the fact that women reporters and hosts get less airtime than men do. You also have fewer women in senior executive positions. So uh, gender equality is still a concern, and that's why UNESCO has developed the gender-sensitive indicators for media, which is a framework. It is a collection of indicators that media organizations can use to assess whether they are being gender-sensitive or not. But why are there still few women who are telling uh, stories on radio? Well, there are many, many issues behind. First, you need to have in the media a working place that will be favorable to women. That is that there will be a gender policy, there will be no harassment, there will be positive measures for women to get technological know-how, that there will be also positive measures, if possible, to accommodate for, for example, flexible working times, for nurseries, etc., But then, on the other hand, we need capacity building and we need just to break traditions. Sometimes for a journalist or for an editor, when they're going to cover a story, they have to look for an expert to be interviewed and quite automatically a man is chosen. When in fact, there may be, or there are in many cases, women experts who could as well bring a testimony. When it comes to testimonies, less than one in five experts interviewed by the media are women and this does not really reflect what happens in society. What can be done to change that? 
there's lots that can be done. One is to raise gender consciousness for the different types of editorial content, if it is a talk show or if it is a documentary or if it is a report, but also across the different subject areas, for example, for politics, economics and science or even sports, usually men are portrayed more than women. What we could do in general, or governments could do, but also media organizations, is to try to give women access to digital platforms, to try to enforce or at least request a non-stereotypical portrayal of men and women in radio. We could also try to foster gender equality actually in the unions, meaning in the media professional organizations or associations, and empowering communicators with media and information literacy skills that can help or that see the point in advancing gender equality. Let me also bring your attention to something else, which is the issue of the safety of women. What do you mean by that? I mean the number of female journalists killed. And in the last year, in 2013, there were three women killed while working as radio reporters as compared to only one in the print and two on TV. Those are the statistics coming from UNESCO that is the ones that UNESCO condemns. But in general, the issue of safety, which is an issue that affects journalists whether they are men or whether they are men, but that when it comes to women, the way, let's say, this risk plays itself, it could be gender-specific. Now to conclude, what's your main message to women around the world on World Radio Day? Don't give up. This is my message. There's still a long way to go, but I think we have a point about the gender equality in radio. Perhaps sometimes the issues have to be still explained, not proning a confrontational, let's say, war with men. It's a question of gender balance. It's a question of how both men and women are portrayed and how men and women can together participate in society and in the media. That was Mirta Lorenko, Chief of Media Development and Society at the UN Scientific and Cultural Organization, talking to UN Radio's Derek Mbata. Wisani Matabula up next with our economics update. Thanks, Lulu. Côte d'Ivoire re-emerging as the prime investment destination in French-speaking West Africa after a decade of political turmoil. However, analysts say government must weed out the corruption and promote reconciliation to keep cash flowing in. Long considered the jewel in the crown of uh, France's former West African territories, a 1999 coup destroyed the reputation of Côte d'Ivoire the world's largest cocoa producer, as an island of stability in a troubled region. Large-scale infrastructure projects served during a decade of political deadlock are now springing back to life. 
Guinness Mining Contract Review Committee has completed its report on BSG Resources mining licenses and will start submitting recommendations after the company's response. Guinea is currently reviewing mining permits granted by previous administrations. It is investigating whether BSRG Resources bribed officials to obtain licenses, including rights to develop the northern part of Simando one of the world's largest untapped iron ore deposits. BSG Resources has strongly and repeatedly denied any wrongdoing. The world's largest maker of personal computers, Lenovo Group, plans to expand its smartphone business in three West African countries this year as it builds on a surge in demand in Nigeria. The company will start selling models of data-enabled phones in Nigeria starting in the first week of March, It says it may start sales in Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire later in the year. Selina Tobong reports. Lenovo agreed to buy Google's Motorola phone unit for $2.9 billion last month as it builds up its smartphone business to offset dwindling PC sales. The deal creates the world's third biggest smartphone vendor behind Apple and Samsung, both of which already sell phones in Nigeria. Lenovo is assessing Ghana and Ivory Coast and hasn't set a time for when it will begin to sell phones there. Nigeria had 156 million mobile phone subscribers as of October 2013 with many subscribers owning more than one phone. User numbers will probably grow to more than 200 million in 2017. Ghana's finance minister Seth Tekpa says raising the key interest rate is meant to shield the economy from capital outflows prompted by the U.S. Federal Reserve tapering that battered emerging markets. Ghana's currency, the city, has tumbled to a record low following the tapering of the U.S. Federal Reserve. Ghana's central bank, led by Governor Kofi Wampa, raised the policy interest rate by 2% to 18%. This is the highest in more than four years and the biggest jump since January 2003. The move came a day after the bank announced curbs on the foreign currency trading to halt a slide in the city, which is Africa's worst performing currency against the dollar this year. And for corporate South Africa, the tumbling local currency, the rent, has been both a blessing and a curse. It's a windfall for mining houses. However, it also has settled domestic manufacturers and retailers with higher cost and weaker consumer demand. The currency's free fall has left many companies, including mobile operator Vodacom and the local arm of Toyota, scrambling to contain the damage. The government says it may even need to step in to support drug makers. Financial indicators, the dollar at 11.4 South African rands at 8.87 Botswana pulas and 5.54 Zambian watches. Also trading at 0.6 British pound and at 0.73 to the euro. Commodities, gold $1,205.8, platinum $1,372 a fine ounce. Brand crude oil is now at $108.97 per barrel. That's how it's looking this hour. Thank you, Isani Figle Lingwati. Up next with the sports news.
Now, sports update this hour, starting off with athletics. South African distance runner Elroy Gallant continued his fine form on Sunday, breaking the South African indoor 3,000-meter record for the second time in the space of a week. Gallant finished fourth at the IWAF indoor permit meeting in Ghent, Belgium, crossing the line in 7 minutes 39.55 seconds. He has qualified to compete in the World Indoor Championships in Soport, Poland, and the World Half Marathon Championships in Copenhagen, Denmark, next month. In cricket news, Cricket South Africa's CE president, Chris Nenzani, says the agreement reached by the International Cricket Council, the ICC board in Singapore, is a work in progress. The ICC board approved wide-ranging structural and governance reforms despite complaints that they placed too much power in the hands of India, England and Australia. Nenzani says they have agreed with the proposals due to the consensus they reached with the ICC. As we have indicated in the statement that uh, there has been a, a consensus on the proposals on the table and uh, those proposals which uh, had been put before us subsequent to the meeting of the 9th, and therefore that consensus is leading us to a situation where we can move forward. Nenzani says nothing in life is perfect, but they believe that these changes will benefit cricket the world over. Yes, we believe so. Uh, that uh, there will be a spin-off for cricket in South Africa, there will be a spin-off for cricket development nationally. Uh, obviously, it's not a perfect system. It's not a perfect resolution, but uh, it gives us a start in terms of looking at into the sustainability of our own organization as well. As I said, that it's not a, it's not a perfect proposal, it's not a perfect arrangement, but uh, it offers an opportunity for us to develop the game. And also, remember, these are transitional arrangements. And uh, within two years, we'll have to say, how then do we advance this thing going forward? And uh, in, in, in that time, the board is free evaluate whether it's working or not and then take decisions appropriately. In golf news, South African golfer George Gutierrez has won the Joburg Open at the Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club to claim his maiden European Tour title with a three-short. Overnight leaders gave the flying Gutierrez an opportunity to reign in the lead which he achieved the four birdies over the front stretch to turn one off the pace on 17 under. Michael Flesmas reports. George Kutsia finally ticked the box of maiden European Tour title when he won the Joburg Open by three strokes at Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club yesterday. A final round of 66 gave him the title on 19 under par and he secured himself a place in the upcoming World Match Play Championship in Arizona and the Open Championship in July. This week he heads to East London for the Africa Open as one of its star attractions now. Kutsia spoke of moving on to the next box he wants to tick, but whether that involves another victory in East London, he wasn't going to say. No, that's uh, my box, not your box. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Flissmas, Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club. Finally, with rugby news, three first-half tries secured a 21-0 cup final for New Zealand over South Africa in a thrilling Wellington Sevens decider at the West Park Stadium at the weekend. The All Black Sevens snapped a five-match cup final losing streak against the Springbok Sevens and also regained their slender lead from the South Africans at the top of the HSBC Sevens World Series standings. New Zealand now lead the World Series table on 99 points, two more than South Africa. And that's just what news this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Congolese militia leader set to appear at the ICC today and UN envoy says the Great Lakes region needs peaceful development. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Kabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Sfiso Mashiko and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. You can also get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Jabu Kanyele with Sponky Ponky.